Phil, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to have you here. So look, here, why this show exists is because that I'm about lifting the veil on what goes on behind the scenes at startups and investment firms and so forth and VCs and angels so that the people who are looking for investment or the people who are building companies know the truth about what works and what doesn't. You know, let's get rid of that. Let's sort the wheat from the chaff and talk about those problems, those real things that people struggle with. And I went through a journey myself where I couldn't find that information. So I started the show to talk about it. Okay. Now, what's particularly interesting about you and the reason I invite you on the show is because we talk all the time about that nirvana of going from like, you know, I started a company and it was just me. In a, we had a guy on um, called Matt who started a t-shirt company in a basement. Yeah, where he was, it's just him on his own and some yellow pages back in 99. And now he runs a huge syndicate and he's doing really great. And I, but at some point when you build a company, it doesn't have to happen, but there is going to be a point where you're going to want to sell that company and then ride off into the sunset. Okay, now- you come from a company that specializes in that B and exit model. So I really want to talk about that. But before we get into that, for the people who don't know you, imagine we're on a first date. Tell me who you are and what you do. Tom, thanks for being Yeah, delighted to be here. Um, so I'm an investor at a fund called Draper Spree. We're a series A and B focused fund based here in London, investing all over Europe. So straight again, what, what does that mean, series A? Series so A what's, is- So what's series A and series B? So the way I think about it is if you're starting out, you're, you're searching for an idea, you're looking for founder market fit. I think that's probably best described as being seed stage. You've got a couple of people who are working together on a hard problem to solve. They've got some experience in the market or an idea, um, and they're going to go and start a company around that. I think series A is probably best described as when you're starting to see something people talk about called product market fit, where you've built at least an early version of your product. You have a couple of early customers, uh, and you're seeing some growth in the business. So Series A is is still quite early stage. Series B is quite different. Series B well, is- So just help, just, I mean, I'm, I love going deep into the detail of these things. So if I'm in a Series A, what kind of revenues am I looking at at this stage? And what kind of levels of investment do you see at Series A and Series B? The, the best example there is probably taking a you know a, an enterprise software business. Yep. At Series A, the magic number seems to be $1 million of ARR. That seems to be the number. So $1 million ARR is Series A magic. That, okay, that's that, cool. That's kind of the headline number that you'll hear a lot of people talk about okay. at that stage of investment. At Series B, the, the range is a little bit wider. It's somewhere in the range at three to $5 million. Uh, it's quite a jump. Though it is quite a jump, particularly yeah. when you consider there's probably only 18 months in the difference. So yeah. it's not a, it's not, you know, a, a good few years down the line. This is like a year or two down the line. So you're talking about growth rates of, you know, over a hundred percent, maybe over 200% in some yeah. cases. And what are people were using that money for typically? Like when I, so someone comes into you and they say like, Hey, what's up, Phil? Can you, um, can you invest in this? You know, give us some money for this. What's a good reason to use it for? Like, surely it's not like, cause if you're running a business now and you've got, two to three million in ARR or whatever. And like, you should be, you should be making some money, maybe, right? You should have money coming into the business. Like, what do you, what's a good reason to be raising at that stage? You're right. At that stage, you should be able to kind of have some optionality. You shouldn't be just funding losses with, with the new money you're taking on at that point. Because that's quite common, isn't it? It, it has been. I mean, we, we've seen a lot of change in the last six months. I mean, post we work, yeah, lots we of people work. focusing on yeah. profitability more and more. But definitely, it's still the case that people will come in with a loss-making business, but you know, huge growth rate and a nice high gross margin as well, where they think they can raise, you know, in the region of five to ten million to double down the opportunity. Now, what they'll use that money for, it's 
it's often sales and marketing. There's probably some product roadmap as well they want to fund. Um, and maybe there's, in some cases, a bolt-on acquisition to, to bring something else to the market alongside their initial offering. Okay, I like that. Makes sense. Okay, look, I've really interrupted your story. Okay, so we'll go back to the very beginning. You're a little, little man in... I'm mean, not saying you're small, but I'm just in the, in the, in the analogy, you're smaller. <laughs> you're in um, the fastest growing city in Europe, Dublin, because it keeps Dublin and Dublin. Look at that. Good gag. <laughs> Good gag. You're in Dublin. Tell me, like, what's, what's, what's going on? Yeah, I'm, you're right. I uh, grew up in Dublin. Um, started out as a lawyer, actually. So Obviously, uh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, naturally, yeah, yeah, you're like, just, look, I'm a lawyer. Yeah, you can't. Do you know what? I'm going to go now into the city and become an investor. Is that a bad accent or is that okay? Shocking accent, but okay, listen, good. I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but yeah, started out in a corporate law firm in Dublin doing um, like traditional transactions and doing some banking and finance work. Did that for about five years and loved the environment. Like you're working with really smart, really motivated people. That's awesome. It was great. It was really good. Now it was hard work. It was during the the worst of the Irish economic crash. So, you know, there wasn't um, an awful lot of like positivity around. I don't know about the Irish economic crash. When you was not? that? I don't know. I mean, look, I'm, I'm so English and ignorant about okay, these things. Okay. Like, I mean, you know, it's like in uh, a couple of sentences, uh, the, the St. Patrick's Day massacre of 2008 wipes, you know, 40% off most bank shares. R- financial massacre. Yeah. Not physical. No, no, no. Financial. Right, okay, good, yeah. Financial. financial or, yeah. Awful choice of words for the PR there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Um, and it basically led to four to five years of... Oh, 2008. Know, All right. So it was, yeah. it was the global crisis. Yeah, part of the global crisis. Right, yeah. fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm not that ignorant. Okay, yeah, I get okay. it. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, so you were there at that point and yeah. you were like... Corporate merger law is sexy stuff. It was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Now, at the same time, I started to have this itch that was, you know, why is it that someone's paying this number for a business? You'd look at a contract and you say, oh, interesting. They're paying like a hundred million for this business. How is it that it's a hundred million, not 98 million, not 102 million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I started to kind of pull on that thread uh, and ultimately it led me to to change course quite a lot. I I ended up going off to the States to, to do an MBA, which was just an amazing experience. I went to Philadelphia and San Francisco to a school called Wharton and it was just- I know, Wharton, wonder- yeah, of course you did. Mate, that's Hollywood school, it buddy. Was great. I, I had like a really, that badge really, of honor. really good experience, yeah. uh, including going out to San Francisco for six months. So within- Which is cool. Which which was really cool. So yeah. within the program itself, they've got a um, you know semester abroad program for people who are interested in tech and venture. And you basically apply to that if you've shown some interest. So all my application essays have been about wanting to, to get into this um, venture industry. Uh, went out to San Francisco with six, 65 other people who were just about that and spent an amazing six months out there just learning as much as I could. And that's really where I Bro, kind of like, caught the bug for this. That's why I said there's three superpowers to being, you know, a, um, a founder, but one of them is networking. And I do, that is, you are connecting yourself up there, right? It was great. I mean, a lot of people out of that 65 ended up staying out in, in San Francisco in, in the, you know, the venture and, and startup game. So yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been a great thing. So you, so you went there, you did your MBA, like, Pretty classic path. Do you know what I mean? Well, the lawyer bit's a bit different, but like, you know, obviously did well incredible at school, went and did the MBA. What attracted you to getting into the venture side of it? We, obviously, you wanted to get, dig into that, like understanding the valuations, but it's not just about maths. Like, it's. No, exactly. It, it, it was kind of more about that positivity. Rather than seeing something contract, I was keen to see something grow. And uh, one of the amazing things about startups is the job creation and the value creation that um, comes along with it. Yeah. Uh, so, Having seen, you know, the, the global economic crash in Ireland, I I was really looking for something that was more positive. And, and venture was something that was introduced to me um, by a friend who, who gave me a, a copy of a book called The Startup Game. Read it cover to cover in like two days. Wait, wait, a, sh- a shout out. Sorry, who's it written by? Ah, so it's written by a guy called Bill Draper, who um, is um, Tim Draper's 
father. So he is one of the first venture capitalists in the Valley. Tim Draper. Is the head of the Draper Venture Network. Um, and the fund I work for, Draper Spree, is the European partner of that network. So you read, wait, I know what you've done here. You read your your boss's dad's book. And then Be, you- Before he was my boss, yes, that's true. <laughs> and you're like, hey guys, yeah, yeah. I read your book. Hey, great book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nice. Chance. I well, like it. I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny how it works out. But if 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 I go back and look at the the essays I wrote applying to business school, it was, you know, a lot drawing on that book and um, that. what the that. firm were doing. Oh, I'm reading it, I'm reading it, done. I'll put the ISBN in the yeah, notes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. okay, so you read that book and you inspired you to get into the, I think that, you know, like when people talk about what attracts them to- the the VC game, it's really interesting, the spectrum of what people go for. Like, you know, I think is my view is that the sexiest thing about working is, first of all, you are helping people achieve their dreams. Like that's, that's you just know simplify. You are taking someone who has an absolute ambition and you are helping them to achieve that, right? That's the amazing part of it. But at the same time, you are on the pulse of tech. Like you're seeing the coolest, you're seeing the future as a VC. You might be seeing what's not the future, 80% of the time, but like there are, you're seeing like what's the future, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do you, so that's the question, right? So you, and I love to hear people's view on this. Someone rocks up and they say to you like, okay, I'm going to go for funding. Okay. Now at your stage, it's a bit more evidence-based, but you've still got a bit of gut. Mm -hmm. You've still got to look at this and be like, what is it? So what are the... What are the non-tangibles that you look at being an investor when you're looking at a company like that? Especially one that's like, yeah, they've got three minute ARR, like they're, they're doing the business. You're right. So you can you can get as into the data on, on that type of business as you want. And there'll be, you know, spreadsheets after spreadsheets that will show you how they're going to convert the like pipeline. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the the non-tangible piece is, is way harder and it's, it's almost always people. It's almost yeah. always trying to figure out how is a co-founding team working together? Um, how is it that these guys are going to go out and hire the amazing salespeople they'll need to reach their targets for the next year, for the next two years? And, and, and how is is it ultimately that they're going to go and convince and acquire in their industry that this is worth more to them uh, than, than, you know, might be uh, the case if they don't buy the company. So I, I think the non-tangible piece is so important and it's all people for, for my money. I love that question. I love it when people say that because like I'm, I, I agree. I mean, but I know, I know nothing, but like, so how do you, here's a question for you and you may not know the answer. How do you make that look good? So when you're looking, so people say, right, I, Everyone says it's all about the people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a, like a soundbite, right? Do you know it's all about the people. Oh yeah. It's all about, yeah. cause you, cause you don't want to say it's, it's all not about, about the people. You yeah. don't want to say it's all about the traction and the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to say that. And so when you do that, but I always say to people like, what, what, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what does that mean? It's all about the people. Like, um, Eamon Carey, who obviously, you know, cause you're from Dublin. <laughs> Ironically, you told me before, you literally do know him because you're from Dublin. I love that. Yeah. I wish you could um, say otherwise. Yeah, I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> but like, he says, um, I love this thing. And I, I wrote, I actually loved it so much. I wrote an article about it on Medium. Shout out to myself there. Um, but he said, um, when you meet a founder who is really good at what they do, the energy fizzes off them and you just desperately want to be part of their journey. And uh, we were saying before the show, we were saying, I, I mean, my view is when you pitch, you have to do three things. You have to elicit emotion in people. And the three emotions you have to elicit are excitement, yeah, number one, they've got to be excited about your opportunity. Two, belief that you can deliver it. And three, FOMO. Yeah. They've got to be terrified that if they, they're going to miss out. Yep. But for you, like when the, you meet those founders and you talk about how well they work together, what are like, just so the people who are listening to this who have a team right now, what are those red flags? What makes you think, I'm worried about these guys? You'd be surprised how 
basics some of it might sound. I've, I mean, I've sat in meetings where founders will cut across each other, like openly criticize, you know, the answer to a question. So some of that stuff is, is very obvious. Like if they're having- And that, you're looking for that when you meet them, right? You absolutely have to, I think, because yeah. this is going to be a team that will go through really good days and really bad days. You know this, right? You can, you can have some of the best days of your life running a business and some of the worst days. And if you're not going to be able to navigate a meeting with, you know, an investor who's just generally interested in your company, how are you going to deal with the really bad days where, you know, to again, borrow a, a line from Eamon when you're staring at the wall trying to make payroll? Like yeah. you need people who can be relied upon, who can uh, work well together in times of real stress, like real stress. Uh, and so in the meetings I have with, with company founders, I'm, I'm screening for that. You, you can have those very obvious moments, but then you also have these kind of fit moments where you talked about excitement, right? I had a meeting last week with a founder that was just from the moment he started talking about what he was building, lots of things clicked into place. And I was like, right, I, I want to be engaged yeah. with this. I want to, I want to follow up on this immediately. I, I could almost stop the meeting now, go off and like do a little bit of work I have to do at the desk and, and come back to him with like the whole host of questions my IC are going to have for him. Um, so, I see. Uh, investment committee. Yeah. So like the, the, the group that will ultimately make the decision whether or not we'll invest. But the, um, the, the excitement piece and, and the fear of missing out piece, I think are, are key. The, the, the belief will come, um, I think ultimately at the initial meeting, it's that excitement and, and, and FOMO piece. I love that. So actually I'm going to dig into something you said there, cause I've, I know nothing about this and I love to hear you. Right. So you talk about the IC. Yeah. Now that I'm cool enough to say it, the investment <laughs> committee. Lift that veil for me, because when I imagine that, I imagine it much the same as what happens to me a lot of the time is I go and meet HR because I've done something wrong <laughs> and then I leave the room and then they decide if I'm going to get a warning. But no, like for you, like what happens in that, you know, like to people who are listening, they're probably picturing a round table with a, with the principal at the top. Is that the top person? What's the top person in, the, so, in your so, company? So in, in Draper, it's a chief investment officer. So you've got the CIO at the yeah. top. All right. You've got, I can, what are the grades in a, in so, so, I mean, typically you go like partner, investment manager, principal, associate. That's yeah. Partner, investment manager, manager, principal, principal associate, associate. That's the order, right? Okay. Typically. You're all sat around the table in a hierarchy order, of course, because yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Talk me through what happens in that IC. Like this, I mean, this is a mysterious thing. You know what's been really interesting? I um, I assumed every every fund would would bring the teams in to meet everyone in person. Not every fund does that, right? So I guess if we're you know trying to set expectations for people who are going to be out meeting with investment funds, it's not always going to be the case that you'll meet with the whole group of the investment committee from that fund. So the the British Venture Capital Association went out and surveyed, uh, I think over hundred funds on their decision making process, and only twenty percent or so bring the teams in to meet with the whole investment committee. So one of those 20% is us. We, br we make sure that we bring the, the team in to meet with our whole investment committee. And the reason is we want to make sure that the fit is right, both on our side and their side. So yeah. they get to meet with all the partners, all the principals, the people who'll be doing the work on their behalf yeah. when they're asking for help from their investor. We want them to see them face to face, get a sense of us as a group, basically. Yeah. Um, and what happens when they're out of the room? Because obviously you're not making a decision in the room. Like, and uh, you know, I'm I'm a sales guy, and I push people for a close all the time. It doesn't work with VCs. Yeah, it doesn't work. It works a little bit in the US. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it doesn't work in the UK, no, right? No, right? Or Europe. So, like, when they leave the room and they've gone out and they're high fiving each other, like, yeah, bro, I fucking smashed this. Like, what are you guys saying once they're out of the room? Like, what are the? And here's a question for you. I'm asking a lot of them here. Is <clears throat> I always want to know how much of it has to be right for you to say yes. So like when you, um, when you get married, okay. Now 
I'm, I have a wonderful wife who I love very much. Um, there are things that she does that annoys me. Like she doesn't, she doesn't shut jaws and stuff like it's annoying, right? Okay. And she's not into rugby, um, all these horrible things, but like, you know, but I, but I love her, but, you know, it works and we have, we have a great family, but like you, but like when you're taking on investment, like what level of fly in the ointment style stuff do you go to? There's two questions. There. The first one is, what are you guys talking about when you go out of the room? Okay. Open, lift that lid for me. So you're right. Once once the, the company leaves the room, we basically have a 30-minute debrief on the, the meeting. Now, I should say as well, there'll have been a lot of Q&A throughout the, the meeting, so the company will probably have a sense of what questions we're going to focus on. But essentially then we debrief on you know how, how the, the company is pitched, remembering, of course, that a good pitch doesn't make a good company and, and also a bad pitch doesn't make a bad company. Yeah, for real. Um, so we go and we then try and like... And it's intense, mate. It's pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, particularly you go into a room, you've probably got 20 people there listening, like hanging on your every word, right? You, It is a pressured environment. And you probably... Sure. And also like, just because they're on the board, it doesn't mean they're a salesperson. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, very, very technical people do not always make very, very good salespeople. Correct. Yeah. So we, we talk a lot about that. Um, and then we'll generally have a, a couple of questions that were raised earlier in the investment process that we'll run through. And, and you asked about the level of, uh, of, of fit. We, we screen for conviction, not consensus is, is kind of the, the buzzword because we've got 15 people sitting around the table. If you tried to convince 15 people of like the right restaurant mm. to go for lunch, you're never going to reach a decision. Five guys. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, instead, what we're really looking for is a couple of um, people who really, really believe. Yeah. So you've got a couple of partners, probably, and a couple of people who've been working with them on the deal who really believe in the opportunity. So you put yourself out there. Yeah, you're you like, do. dude, I'm into this. I love that. So you want to get, so you want to get yourself a champion. Yeah, and, exa and exactly that. That champion will have been working on the company's behalf at investment committee meetings for probably a month before yeah. the, the company themselves come in to meet with us. What's the turnaround time from like, actually no, go back to my original question. Right, so when you talk about like red flags and stuff, like, yeah, so you're, there's obviously some stuff which you just can't go along with, right? You'd be like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. They don't understand who their competitors are. They're too arrogant. Classic stuff that you'd be like, not for us, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, they're never going to make any money. Yeah, whatever. Their founders hate each other. Mm -hmm. You know, which weirdly, CB Insights did a survey and there was like number four, wasn't it? It's the most common reason. No, three, sorry. Most common reason the startups failed is founder fallout. Yeah. It's legit. It's real. I, I saw something really recently, which is so funny you say it because they, they used to talk over each other. Okay. They used to talk over each other and like criticize each other. And I was like, yeah, he's the commercial guy. He's the technical guy. And now they are two separate businesses. <laughs> And, and that's, it's funny, like I've seen it more than once, you know, like it's not an isolated incident. It's, uh, yeah. So I, I suppose the point to people who are thinking about setting off on this journey of building a company is, yeah. you know, you're going to be in this, maybe think about it like a marriage. You're going to be in this for a mm. long time. Yeah. So yeah, pick your partner wisely. It's interesting. My, um, so one of my co-founders is my best friend, okay. which a lot of people are like, whoa, dude, yeah, don't close, do yeah. it, don't do it. Um, but like, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you do have to, it's like, well, you have to, you have to go through that journey of you're not friends anymore. You're family now. Like, it's got to be that thing of like, if you do something wrong, you're still going to be there in the morning. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? You've got yeah, to go yeah. through that transition. Like where the two girls in here run Eric Festival. Um, by the way, by the way, if anyone has a chance, check out their story. It is ridiculous how naturally brilliant they are at this. Uh, but they, they were best bezies before they started working together and they, they had some troubles, but then they just figured it out. Once you figure out who does what, who's good at what, then you're okay. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is when you don't have that balance, you have to agree who does what. Yeah. That's my view anyway. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? 
making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So now, so we get, you go through that investment committee. How long does that process take from like, you meet these guys to doing it? Now, it's like, it's quite late on for some of our audience, but I'm interested to know, like, if I'm, if I've been through, some of these people we're talking to might be going through seed, seed stage now, right? Yeah. They might've just been through seed and they, you know, and um, we have a lot of listeners who listen, not because they're super early stage, but because they want to double check that what they're doing is best practice. You know, some of the founders we have on here have been through seed and they're looking at series A or series B because people don't realize that if you're taking series A, you might actually still be quite a new company. There might just be like seven or eight of you and you're taking series A, like that's legit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but- one of the things I would, they always say is like, never underestimate how long it takes to raise money. You know, so um, if you're raising angel investment, it can take, like I recently met an investor on a Wednesday and they put money in on Friday. Wow, it's quick. Okay, yeah. right? Okay, and I think I, I like pitching, okay? But I've also met people who, I've met someone who I met in, I met and it took them four and a half months, yeah, to put some money in, yeah. okay? And we weren't going slow. Like you just don't know. So typically for you guys, like I suppose, is it quicker or slower because you've got more information? I think that the trend is definitely moving towards towards making quicker decisions. Uh, I saw actually on the way over, I saw Josh Koppelman from First Round tweeting about their average time to term sheet has now reached nine days, right? Which for, is from meeting from to first meeting to term sheet nine days. What stage? Uh, seed. So I think at, the, at that stage- oh, Shit's the fuck, what fund's that? <laughs> first round, uh, so they're, they're a US fund, they're like super successful seed investor. I, it's, very, it's really interesting actually you say that because um, I spent a little bit of time in San Francisco okay. and I met a few funds out there, loved them. I just love them because like, I, think I wanted to get the experience of pitching to them so I could talk about it, see how it's different. And um, they will, they, they'll make you an offer there. Yeah. It's such a strange environment. So like I met a guy in a coffee shop and he's like, you know what, Tom? I like you. I like the idea. Let's do it. He might be knowing that he's he a Italian. New Yorker in he's San Francisco. Right? Yeah. In San Francisco. <laughs> he's also from Italy. Anyway, but yeah, he is like, I loved him actually. I really, I really like the guy, but it wasn't, it wasn't right for us. But they, um, and also we weren't right for him. We figured out after we figured out what he wanted to do, but that trend that they do it so quickly. Why is it slower here? So I think at the seed stage, it's it's really picked up pace here as well. I mean, um, I work really closely with with a bunch of seed funds. I bet you do, because that's your deal flow, right? Well, well exactly. I mean, we, we would look at those portfolios to say, okay, well, if they've raised seed funding this year, the likelihood is next year they'll be out raising Series A. And so do you meet them then? We'll often meet with them at really early stages just to get a sense of right, what's the market you're building in? What's the team you're assembling? Where are you hoping to go? Um, so this question for you, not to interrupt you, but like, so... Say I'm a C stage company, right? And I know that I'm going to be doing A or B suit in the event. And also like, Drake, you guys are a sexy brand, right? Okay, you're, you're definitely the Hollywood end of the spectrum and I love that. But like, if you, should I reach out to you now and be talking to you now just to like meet you for a coffee, tell you a bit about what I'm doing, get you on the radar so you're thinking about it, right? Rather than like, I meet you in 18 months and you're like, well, I don't know who this, this cat is. So I, I think building a relationship early works better. Certainly from my point of view, that's how I've, worked very well with some companies. They'll yeah. be in touch around the time of their seed raise. I mean, acknowledging that they're also trying to run a business as they raise their their seed round, maybe it makes more sense for them to to focus on those seed investors who will write their their check uh, for their seed round. And then when they've closed that round, 
go and try and build relationships yeah. with the next kind of stage of, of investor. But I've seen it done really well where, you know, you target a couple of later stage funds who you know have good relationships with seed funds. And maybe you have, you know, half an hour coffee chat with them. And really the ask from the founders side is, well, can you introduce me to any funds who you think might like my, uh, yeah. my business, who might be a good partner for me at seed round? So yeah, I mean, I, I do that quite a bit. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so now moving forward, this is the I'm I'm really fascinated about. And I want to talk about specifically why I invited you on. Um, not that the rest wasn't interesting. <laughs> that sounds awful. Um, no, but like I, so like I said, a lot of people, not everyone, but there are a large portion of people who start companies because they want to sell them eventually and do something with them. Right, that's what they want to do. Okay, so first of all, talk me through what is what does an exit look like? Like, what are the kind of exits that happen? Because yeah, people always say, look, see, it happens. Like you, people will go to a meeting with a VC, but early on they'll be like, okay, tell me what your, your, what, yeah, what's your exit strategy? And they're like, what the fuck? I don't, I don't know. Mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what is, what is an example? So the, the kind of the two categories of exit that we typically talk about are either an IPO, um, initial public offering. Yeah, or, which uh, means? Which means basically selling shares to the public. So, um, you know, notable examples in the last year, Uber and Zoom. Okay, so that's pretty aspirational. But yeah. like, would you do something like, but if you were on like on a smaller market like AIM, would that count as an IPO? Absolutely, yeah. But and does it have to be all of the company? Like do people end up staying at the business or they sell the whole thing and they bugger off? So they, they can, I mean, typically it's, it's the whole company, but you can package up um, certain parts to the company. So a okay. good example people may be familiar with already is Manchester United have a very, very small part of that business publicly listed. Okay. Um, so you can package it up, but but mostly people will float the whole business. Fine. Okay. And then when that yeah. happens, they tend to stay. Founders will tend to stay and run the business. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other category of, of exit is, is something that's called like a strategic acquisition, which basically means selling the company to a slightly larger company, typically, who are active in the industry. So and that's much more common. Way, way more common. Yeah. I mean, and when you, so on that, um, it's not all just by companies. Do you like PE firms or buy them because they match up with someone else in their portfolio? That's yeah, very good point. Yeah, you can you can have kind of PE acquirers who want to you know execute some sort of roll up strategy. So they're going out and buying up you know a couple of businesses. They're going to roll them together and and sell that product offering to the market. But, yeah. Um, the ones we typically see most often is when you've got like a, a big tech company coming to acquire a really interesting team or a really interesting piece of technology. Yeah, I always um, I say to people all the time when they're talking about acquisition that it's much easier to build a product than to acquire customers, and so yeah, people will buy you for your customers. Yeah, yeah. Like Microsoft do it all the time. Microsoft can build everything if they want to. Yeah, but it's much cheaper for them to buy someone who already has won the customers and has the tech. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting though. But one of the partners at our fund had a very different example. He, he ended up selling a business to, to Oracle, um, and within two years uh, post acquisition, Oracle had taken the, the tech that he and his team had developed, put it in the hands of their global sales force, and you know delivered. I think it's five X or something crazy that they, they would just never have been able to do without the the infrastructure. Oh, of really? The Oracle sales well, team. it turns out I'm 100 percent wrong. Ignore I, me. I, I just I think the point is that like you know there's there's lots of ways to yeah. skin a cat. Well, I'm happy to be wrong. Um, okay, so if I'm so I look at that. So I'm in a room. I'm talking to a VC. I have to then. So I think it's probably prudent, isn't it, to think about. Do you recommend to those companies think about who would buy you eventually? I think that's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the industry, um, and, and some of this can be brought up by like simple Google searches, who in your industry is likely to acquire a business if you did go ahead and build it? And the, the kind of more detailed point: what do they typically pay for a business like that? Yeah, are they are they an acquirer that will pay a multiple of your of your earnings of your profits, or are they a company that might pay a multiple of your revenues? And then you can figure out pretty quickly: okay, these are going to be 
rough figures, but pretty quickly, what universe of exit are you in? Yeah. So on that quickly, so people who don't know, and I'm one of them, right? How would I know whether they're going to do it on profit or on revenue? What would be a characteristic that would dictate that? So uh, it, it depends on the, the type of acquirer. So there are lots of good data providers out there who will show you historic acquisitions by by these companies. So you can go and take a look through their, you know, their entire acquisition history and say, right, well, it's publicly available information that company X was doing 100 million of revenue and 1 million of profit. And we know that company X was bought by, you know, company Y, but they only paid 10 million. Got it. Right. Yeah. And that's all on Crunchbase, right? Yeah. Like Crunchbase, PitchBook, yeah. Deal Room. These are, these are all very- Was that the one, sorry? Deal Room. Deal Room. Yeah. yeah. So okay. there's lots of great information out there nowadays, which is, yeah, thankfully uh, available to, to founders, which is going to you know, make things a lot easier as you try and back solve from this uh, exit. And so how do you make yourself, a tr- how do you start from the beginning? Because like, you know, you're looking at Series B, you're not thinking I'm going to, I, you're buying something because you want to sell it, right? That's why you're doing it. Okay. Um, and so you're going to be looking at something that is sellable. So what are the things that you can do early on to make your company attractive so it's an easy deal later on? Yeah, I remember so like um, we had Warwick on here, Warwick Hill from Microsoft, who's an absolute legend of this kind of stuff. And he just talks about having multiple bits of value. So it's not just like my only value is I've got a massive audience. They yeah. don't spend any money, mm-hmm. right? But it could be like, I've got that, I've got data, I've got this, I've got that. Yeah, X, Y, Z. Is that, is that the right thing? So you think about all the things that could have value. Yeah, I mean, the, the the slight twist I'd put on that, and it's something we talk about a lot at, at our investment committee, is who, who is this strategically valuable to? So, yeah. you know, say you've got a company that's doing, again, just for the sake of example, 10 million of revenue. That's that's a really nice business, really, really nice business. But who is it that would take the piece of tech they've developed and see the potential to, you know, overnight go to 50 or 100 million with this? Um, and so it's probably back to the point of, can you put it in the hands of a, a larger sales force? Can you roll it out to a marquee customer mm, of a big yeah. tech company yeah, that yeah. they then absolutely need to have this piece of tech in-house? Um, and if you know the industry well enough, some of these things may be obvious. If you don't know the industry well enough, go and meet people from the, the, the companies if possible, or else go and meet people who are out on the outside but know these companies very well. I love that. I love that. That makes absolute sense to me. It's really interesting. Okay, right. So we're coming to the bit of the show where I read you some questions at random that people have sent in to me and you can choose to either read them or not. Fantastic. Not read them, answer them or not. (laughs) All right, okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay, it's a valuation question. Right. It comes up. Right. I've just launched my company. Okay, we have an MVP. We have no customers. How do I value my business? I would think about it in terms of dilution. So um, this is probably slightly in the weeds answer, but but I'll give it a go. So if you're looking to raise some amount of money at, at MVP stage, think about the next two or three key milestones for your business. Try not to raise more than 12 months runway. And for that amount of money, assume you'll give away 20% of your business to the people who will invest. And you can work out your valuation from that. So for example, say you need 250K, um, for the next year to hit the next three milestones, you're probably talking in the range of 1 million pre-money, 1.25 post, something like that. That's a really great answer, Phil. <laughs> I'll take that. Oh, brilliant. Okay, fine. Okay, next. Um, <laughs> what makes a shit VC? <laughs> um, it, it's really interesting. So I was, I was speaking to someone last night 
And I mentioned I was coming on your podcast and they said, oh, whatever you do, make sure you give out about dead equity. Uh, so I'm going to give out about debt equity. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a direct answer to this question. I have literally no idea what that is. Debt equity is people who want to invest money in a company because startups are sexy and fun, but they're not going to do anything uh, beyond write a check, right? So I think what you need to be aware of as you're raising those initial rounds um, of, of capital is like, what beyond the check will this person or this fund do for me? Is it just because they want to get some tax relief because they're funding a startup? Or do they have a network in this industry that I can really tap into? Or do they know some later stage funds that they can walk me in the door of? So yeah, I'll give out about debt equity. Nice. Phil, you're good at this. I like it. Okay. All right. Uh, last one. I don't want to press you too much. Okay. Last one is... Um, da, 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 da. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, what's the hot ticket? Like, what's the industry right now that gets you fired up? Quantum computing. That's one I'm just like reading everything I can about it. Uh, I think it's just. Summarize fun. it for us. So, quantum computing is basically the next wave of computing that's going to propel us into this great new era. Um, essentially, it's born of the idea that the current computers we use are reaching their limit. Um, and no matter how hard we push them, they're never really going to get beyond incremental gains from here. Instead, what a cohort of companies out there, including some great companies in the UK and, and across Europe are doing, are trying to develop quantum computers which can operate in just a completely different way. So instead of doing these binary bits, these ones and zeros that, that people will be familiar with from code, um, quantum computers have the ability to do crazy things like superposition. These, uh, these are technical deep physics terms that I will not be able to explain without tripping myself up. But uh, the applications in cryptography, in, in compute itself, and drug discovery, the whole host well, of Give me an example of something that would be interesting to me in my life, like that they would help me with. Um, so solving, um, solving like uh, security keys is, is one of the things. So one of the, the issues people talk about when they talk about quantum is uh, that cryptography that we have spent you know, decades and decades building up will, will be attacked by quantum computers and so needs to be reimagined. So I think at the moment, most cryptography is founded on the idea that a traditional computer would set, take something in the region of a trillion years to solve, you know, the algorithm that, that secures mm. um, most of our, our important data. Quantum computers will do it in about 10 seconds. So it'll affect wow. your daily life, mine, everyone listening. I'm in. I'm in. Okay. Yeah, I it's exciting. So, so like if I want to make a squillion pounds, make some quantum computing stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's where it's going to be. Really, I mean, it's genuinely groundbreaking. Still, some technical risk, um, but I think it's going to be fascinating to watch that sector develop over the next five, ten years. Love it. All right, two more last questions. Right, so one: What is the most common fuck up you see companies make that's avoidable? Building out your cap table, I think, uh, is is one you can definitely manage. So. Um, as a founder, I would be very, very careful how much I hang on to with my team. So what I mean is when you get to the kind of the Series A and Series B stage, do you as a founder and your co-founding team have enough of a business to have huge upside in a, in a positive outcome? Right? What's a good number? I mean, it's, uh, it's not cookie cutter stuff, but in the region of 30% at Series B. Um, you and your founders need to own 30%. I, th I think that that's probably a, okay. a good aim. I mean... What, what I've seen companies do, and it's actually something I get annoyed about, is when you know they raise a seed round, they come to do their Series A, and they've given away 50% of the business in their seed round, and you just think, well, 
either I'm going to have to come in and be, you know, the bad guy in the room and try and reimagine the cap table mm. so that your team get more and get, yeah. you know, incentivized to build a huge business here. Or, you know, I don't know what I can do. What's so, the solution to that? So you can do things around kind of option pools to try and like make sure the team are getting enough um, upside in, in, from an yeah, equity sure. point of view. But it's a really tough one. Sometimes it's just not worth the effort because the existing investor, I mean, the, the other thing I would say is, remember, you can't really fire your investors. There's um, Once they buy the shares, it's really, really difficult yeah. to get rid of them. Yeah. So uh, if you come to that type of cap table, you see 50% in the hands of a seed investor who, you know, probably is is not helping out too much beyond the series A or series B. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult. Skip it advice. All right. Poster quote time. All right. So big Phil O'Reilly is there and he's on a poster and he gives out his quote that everyone fires around Twitter. What is your one piece of gold of advice that you would give to all businesses? That's such a tough one. One piece of advice I give to all businesses. Do you want me to give you an example? I've, I'm working on three. Okay. One. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Two, activity breeds activity. Yeah. Yep. Action kills doubt. So I really like the idea of having a bias to action. I think that's good. Um, but it, bias to action isn't as punchy on a poster as I would like it to be. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say go fast. I think go fast, particularly um, at the stages we're talking about, Seed Series A, you know, speed will get people so interested if you're doing around try and do it as quickly as you can if you're talking with customers try and do it as quickly as you can it's momentum is just brilliant for, for companies and excitement is so contagious excitement is contagious um and you talked about it right at the beginning uh the fear of missing out i, I would not underestimate how powerful a factor that is i say it's very interesting you talk if you talk to any investors and you ask them about deals they've lost. They won't tell you about. They, they don't tell you about deals they fucked up on. No, they no, don't it's hurt just, them. It's, it's the ones they like. It's, every every investor that, they may that, not admit it, but every investor has their their anti portfolio list, right? Yeah. So you've got um, a list of companies that you saw at Series A or Series B or even Seed, and and you said no. Yeah. And they went on and they smashed it. You're like, yeah, I passed on X. Yeah, and you're exactly. like, you fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get yeah. it. Yeah. Look, Phil, you've been brilliant. I'm so glad you came on. Thanks a minute, Tom. Really enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks so much. And um, cool. Brilliant. See you soon.